when political correctness has gone so far that we become jailed by our fear of what people may think of us and are unwilling to talk about the things that make us different, then we quit growing and then we pull into groups that look like us and think like us and then we're operating in a vacuum and no growth takes place. What is up, you sexy bastards? It's your boy Pickleball, aka Rabbi Can't Lose, aka Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Bill Courtney, inspirational football coach whose life was the subject of the 2011 Academy Award-winning documentary, Undefeated. I saw this on an airplane and cried while watching it. When I landed, I reached out to Bill to learn what it takes to be a winning coach, especially at a challenging school. He's also the CEO of Classic American Hardwoods, a lumber company headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee. He's got that good old Southern drawl. I love chatting with coaches to learn how they best organize their teams, and Bill had his work cut out for him. He's got a family of four, a very challenging high school football team, and an American trade war that's threatening his livelihood. In this conversation, you'll enjoy three major things. Number one, how Bill organizes his football team and company to win. Two, dealing with adversity in the 2008 financial crisis. And number three, doing the hard work makes all the difference. You're going to enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more goodies along the way. Enjoy. Before we jump into the conversation, go check out Bill at coachbillcourtney.com and find out more about what he does. He also has a lumber business, so if you're in need for lumber, check out Classic American Hardwoods. Follow him on Twitter. That's I am Coach Bill. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Leola Owabumoa. If that's your real name, that is awesome. Hold on, I'm Googling it. Anyways, it's Leola Oabumoa of the USA. Amazing name. She left a review saying, Noah, you're just a beautiful bastard. That is a really nice thing to say about me. If you want a shout out in a future episode, leave an iTunes review. I check every single one. What was the worst thing or what was something that come to mind about you getting misrepresented from uh, getting interviewed? Well, first, undefeated, there's... 450 kids I coached in six years at Manassas, and there's a story under every helmet. There were nine coaches there that when I started, there was just two of us, but it evolved to nine coaches. I continued to bring people in. Well, those coaches did a lot, and I try to give them credit every chance I get, but the media doesn't want to hear that story. All they want to hear is mine. It took me some time to understand that I had very close friends who worked very closely with me for those kids. And I had a lot of kids that I cared deeply about that played for me that weren't part of the movie and the coaches that weren't getting any due recognition for their part in what Manassas and Undefeated was. And they got their feelings hurt. And it didn't matter how many times I said, look, this isn't just about me and three kids. This is about an entire program of kids and a whole bunch of volunteers and coaches. And although I'm the face of it, you know, you wouldn't believe. And I tell all the backstory. And then of course it doesn't get published. And then after a year of doing every show and sports center and Roy Firestone and all these other things all over the the country, and none of these guys hear their name mentioned once, they start thinking that I'm happy to take credit for their work as well as my own. And that's unfair and that's wrong. But if the press doesn't want to hear it, they're not going to print it. And it took me a while to sit down and explain that. And those relationships are sound now, but they certainly could have been damaged by that. And all I'm saying is people in the public eye, the big people public eye, like Pete Carroll and all, he'd spend 12 hours a day trying to correct what people think and say based on some media narrative. And therefore, they just kind of get into a shell and they hold the people close to them that they trust the most. And they kind of have to have a damn everybody else attitude or you'll get eaten up from the inside out with that stuff. And it's real. I've seen it. So we'll go into the coaching. We'll go into the book. I got the book Monday, finished it yesterday, Monday, and then it finished it on Wednesday. So definitely want to talk about that. Uh, Good. Your time since then. I'm still a little curious, like did these people like these mega celebs, they just like text you like after the movie comes out does like pete just like email you like it's pete carroll at aol.com like how does that happen i'm represented by wme and they're also represented by wme so agent talks to agent and connects you and then you have conversations it's like serena williams is my favorite person on the face of the planet she's awesome and she was really good to me uh the sutherland family that whole crew was great pete was good phil jackson was great when the movie showed in Austin 
at the South by Southwest the very first time. It didn't get picked up by any anyone else. And they showed it once. It had two slates. And the first slate was some crappy time, like at one o'clock on a Tuesday, which nobody goes to movies one o'clock on Tuesday. And the other slate was an equally crappy time. After it showed, it got moved to a main slate at either a Friday. I can't remember if it was a Friday night or a Saturday night at seven, which was the slate got moved to the biggest screen. And they called me and said, you got to fly down here. So Lisa and the kids and I flew down and we'd never seen it. We didn't know what to expect. And the first time I ever saw the movie, I was sitting in a auditorium of 1,100 people packed in Austin at South by Southwest and standing ovation and people, you, you wouldn't believe how surreal it is to sit around watching. First of all, I didn't know I was that fat. Second of all, I didn't think I talked that country. Third of, third of all. You know, it's very odd to have people laughing at something you said when you were thinking, well, I wasn't trying to be funny and then crying at stuff that's your life. Anyway, that night there's an after party and there was an all night bidding war between like Sony, Merrimax, MGM, all night bidding war. And the thing sold for a bunch of money and the producers and directors of it were extraordinarily happy. And that night they were represented by WME. And their representation came to me and said, your life is never going to be the same. You're going to need an agent. And I laughed at him and I said, there's no way I'm going back home and telling people I have an agent. They'll think I've lost my mind. And then two weeks later at home, my phone wouldn't quit ringing. My receptionist threatened to quit. I was just trying to do my life. So I signed with them and they pushed me in TV shows and press and the book and speeches and all that. But as a result of being represented by them, there's a whole lot of other people represented by them. And then they know that I'm a WME guy. So they reach out to me. So that's a long winded answer to how it works. No, I love the story. It's interesting. So they didn't show you the movie. What did you expect it to do? When they called me and said, you got to be at this thing. I said, well, am I even in it? I mean, how much am I in it? I, I mean, I didn't know. <laughs> Look, man, they followed us around for nine months. They left Memphis with 560 hours of film and edited for a year. The guys who made this film were 29 years old at the time, and they had one credit to their name, and it was a thought-provoking, heartwarming documentary on the World Series of Beer Pong. <laughs> Swear to God, it's all they'd ever produced or made in their life. And... They come down here with two cameras, all three of them living in a two-bedroom apartment in a borrowed car, and they were going to make a movie. So I thought we'd see it on channel 652 one Wednesday night at 3 a.m. one day. I never thought it would be any big deal, and the rest is history, to be very cliche, but it is. And so, you know, they showed me pieces of it, and going into the thing, I said, look, you can follow us around. You can do what you want to do, but there's three rules. And if you don't follow the rules, you're wasting your time. One, be honest. Do not embellish or sensationalize these kids' lives because kids that come from the inner city are sensationalized on a daily basis. So you show what you see, good, bad, ugly, who we are, everything from cussing to prayer and everything in the middle. You tell the story what you see, regardless of what your preconceived notions are, which I know, no, I never had to tell them that because they are honest, good people, but I didn't know that going in. That was rule one. Rule two was, I don't care what you show of me or what I say or how I act or anything, but if there's any profanity that comes out of my mouth, I want to know it before you put it on film because I have children and I am a failed human being like all of us. And there are things that I may do that I'm not going to be very proud of. And I'll deal with the repercussions of what I do wrong on my own, but I do not need them spread out all over the world or for my children or grandmother to see. And then the, the third thing was when you finish, if there's anything that you think after knowing me that I may not like, you have to show it to me first. And so they sent me a series of five or six clips pieces of the thing. And we talked about them and I didn't change a single thing. So yes, I saw six or seven, three to four minute pieces of the movie, but I'd never seen the movie. One, I love the accent. I mean, let's just start, <laughs> let's just start with that. The draw is great. How did they find you? There's a lot of football teams across a lot of inner city, outer city and so forth. How did they come across you guys? TJ Martin and Dan Lindsay are the directors, which are also the cameramen and the editors and the talent that 
take 550 hours of film and somehow craft it into a story that people understand and enjoy. And then the producer was Rich Middlemas. Rich went to the University of Tennessee, and he has an unhealthy obsession with UT football, which I think any obsession with UT football is unhealthy, but his is significantly unhealthy. And he was uh, Lane Kiffin had just got hired as the head coach at, at Tennessee, and he uh, was reading something about Lane Kiffin's first interview. And in that interview, they said, what's your first order of recruiting business? And he said, my first order of recruiting business is go to Memphis and try to recruit O.C. Brown. So Rich Googled O.C. Brown, who's O.C. Brown, and an article from the daily paper in Memphis called The Commercial Pill came up that was an article about me coaching O.C. since he was in ninth grade and him living with Mike Ray and me taking him back and forth to, uh, to school in the morning. And he thought that was an interesting story. And he had a contract for a couple of ESPN 30 for 30 shorts. So he flew down thinking he was going to do a little short documentary clip about the whole story. It'd be cute. He found out about all the other kids. He found out about all the work we'd been doing. He found out that this wasn't a one-year thing, but it'd been going on for years and thought it was a movie. He said he was going to go make a movie and he left. And I thought, well, that'll be the last time we see that guy. And then they showed up at spring practice. Three guys and skinny legged, you know, Los Angeles looking <laughs> clothing and scarves, porn mustaches and all that stuff. And uh pulled out their little cameras out of their beat up rented car and started filming. And I thought, well, this'll be something. Honestly, I thought it was gonna be a video yearbook. That's what I thought it was gonna be. You know, I thought all the kids on the team could get a CD and have a, a video yearbook of their Last year, playing football at Manassas. That's the whole reason I agreed to do it. Thought it'd be a cool experience for them. Are you tired of talking about it, by the way? I really have done probably 350 interviews, and I've been doing some podcasts lately like this stuff. That is the first time anybody – I've had every, every question I thought, am I tired of it? No. And I'll tell you why I'm not tired of it. Because I am a business owner who's 52. I'm painfully white. I own a company. I am from the Delta South where cotton is king and from a host of crazy circumstances was blessed with a platform as a result of that movie. I think political correctness is killing us. I do not think political correctness is a bad thing. I think we had to grow up and Think about the language we use. So I think there is a place in the world for political correctness, but I also think the pendulum can swing too far. And I think when we get to a place that we're so worried about what people are going to think about us, that we're unwilling to have civil, but real non-threatening conversations about the crap that matters like faith and like race and like politics, when we, when political correctness has gone so far that we become jailed by our fear of what people may think of us and are unwilling to talk about the things that make us different, then we quit growing. And then we pull into groups that look like us and think like us. And then we're operating in a vacuum and no growth takes place. And so this movie has given me a platform to stay outside of that vacuum and say some things that I think need to be said, but you can't rat hole me as a racist. You can't rat hole me as a typical white business owner, you can't rat hole me as a typical what people in the non-flyover states think a white dude from Memphis that owned You can't rat hole me. And you can't rat hole me because there's video evidence that I am not what you may think I am just looking at me the day you meet me. And that gives me a platform to talk about stuff. And so, no, I'm not tired of it because I think that platform allows me to start conversations in different places that need to be started. I love it. How did you keep your sanity? Like you got all this attention all of a sudden and unexpected. You didn't get a plan for it. All these years, like how have you kept that kind of grounded? I know for me, I'd be like, yo, Ferraris. No, I'm joking. But it, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to learn. Because, man, I don't know what your audience is. I really don't. It's a lot of entrepreneurs. We may lose half your audience right now. And if we do, we do. I hope we don't, because you might find out that what I'm about to say also has many different layers, but I'm a Christian and what people think of me 
positively or negatively is really fairly insignificant. You know, you can call me a fat redheaded asshole and I will react the same to you as if you run up to me and want my autograph. It's just not that big a deal to me. I know who I am. I know what I am. I know how horrendous I am. And I know the few things I get right on a daily basis. So, uh, you know, coaches get way too much credit for wins and they get way too much fault for losses. Likewise, guys that are in the public eye and that movie and the book and the speeches and stuff, people are, are oftentimes way too enthusiastic about my accomplishments to this world. And I know that. And so it's just not something that, you know, defines me at all. This is something I was trying to understand because I've watched the movie twice. I actually watched it years ago and then somehow I downloaded it accidentally. I downloaded it and I was crying on an airplane and I reached out to you and then I bought the book and we've been connecting. Why do you think your style and your personality resonated so much? Right? Because there's other coaches, right? But it's like, I'm, I was trying to think, it's like, what is it about you and your style of personality and influence and talk and all this stuff that, that people get? Really candidly, I think we are surrounded by BS. Twitter's 90% BS. Facebook's 90% BS. I mean, there's no Walter Cronkite in the world anymore. People don't trust anymore. And for better or worse, I actually think people trust me. I mean, I, I think they see somebody they can trust. And then the second thing is, honestly, I think people can identify with me. I'm, I'm a guy from Memphis. I'm a dude from Memphis who volunteered coaching high school football. I mean, what's the difference in me and thousands of other Americans except my story got told? And so whatever it is you do in your life that you do philanthropically, whether it's serving soup in, in homeless kitchens or doing something at your synagogue or mosque or, or church, or you, or you do something inside an, an organization that you're part of somewhere else or whatever, I think people can relate to me because I'm just a guy, man. I'm just a dude that whose story got told. There's not, I don't see a whole lot difference in me and, and anybody else, except that I'm fairly passionate and I tell the truth, whether it's good or bad or ugly, I tell the truth. Well, I think that's surprising because you're watching some adult talk to kids who, one, they're, they're huge, right? These are big kids. They're not really, I mean, they're man kids. They're children chronologically, but they're adults physically. I think it's partially that you're, one, you turn the team around or you and the coaches and, and, the, and the kids. Thank you for saying that because yeah. that's right. Your group turned it around and you talk shit to them. It's like, how do you actually work with your teams to get them to be productive? You know, because they've had other coaches and they've had other staff, but it wasn't working. I think that's something that your book Against the Grain says, which is awesome. It's like, yo, obviously you're caring about them. You're not just yelling at them because you're wanting to yell. Two things. Players win games. Coaches win players. Likewise, salesmen win contracts. Sales managers win salesmen. Employees win business. Managers win the employees. And, and what I mean by that is if you surround yourself by an army of people, who believe in you and you have their hearts and minds, they'll go win. But if you think that you are so good that all of it happens because of you and all these other people are just minions, then they're never going to go win anything for you because they don't want to. So what I'm saying is you got to give credit where credit's due and players win games. I've never seen a football coach make a tackle. I've never seen them catch a ball or score a touchdown. They just don't do it. Players do that and they win games. And the best way to get them to go win games is win them. And the way you win them is you love them up and you trust them and they trust you. But here's the other thing. If a kid on a team or if an employee in your business or if a child in your household or a spouse, it doesn't matter what part of your life that these people are. If they know that in the depth of your soul, you care about their well-being and them being elevated, if they know that you care and that your actions show that you care and you work to help elevate the people that you seek to lead and you build them up twice as bad as you beat them up, they'll take an astuan. They'll take an astuan when they're wrong. Because if you say to them, when I'm wrong, you're going to hear an apology and I'm willing to look in a mirror. But I need that from you, too. And if someone makes a mistake and does something wrong, yeah. I mean, you call them out on it. It is what it is. That's the real world. In football, in your family, in business, it doesn't matter. If somebody screws up, you call them out on it. But if you're willing to call yourself out, 
and they see that and they know that you're real, then when you call them out, they'll take it because they also know that you're not calling them out to beat them up. You're calling them out to correct them and you'll love them up twice as much when they correct it and get it right. Then an ass chewing is not that big a deal. Ass chewing just is a weird sounding word, but. Oh, is it? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I on, love the message. Come on to the Delta. I'll show you what it was. <laughs> no, I love the message. I, I think where I started going with that or wondering is that in your business, and I want to talk about how great your website is, by the way. I think it's nice website. Half of it doesn't load. We could talk <laughs> about your internet strategy, marketing strategy. I don't have a marketing strategy. I don't even know what that means. I really don't. You found me. I mean, there you go. What's There it is. You found me. Well, how do you get customers in your business? Oh, you talking about my business or my other website? You talking about classic website or built? I was talking website? about classic resource, innovative product, uh, contemporary uh, service. That's under construction. <laughs> it's being redone. But if you look at it now, promise me you'll look at it a month from now because it really is being redone. All right. I'm putting it on my calendar because I'm going to follow up with it one month. Yeah. Yeah. You check that thing out in about 30 days. See what you think. How we get business, I think if you sit around hoping a website and a phone's going to ring, you're screwed. I get business by finding out who buys my products, qualifying the customers and getting my ass out of my chair, going knocking on their door, sitting down in front of them and tell them about the features, advantages and benefits of my product. And I shake a hand and do business across a desk. Who are your large customers? Not the specific ones, but what kind of customers are buying a hardwood? Think of it this way. Softwoods build a house, hardwoods furnish it. Okay. Softwoods build a structure. Okay. So two by fours, four by sixes, pine, spruce, all that. All right. Hardwoods are the things that furnish it. Hardwoods make flooring, windows, make uh, plantation shutters, furniture, crown mold, trim mold, trim around your doors, where the interior stuff, oak, red oak, white oak, ash, maple, cherry, the pretty stuff. And we sell to people who make flooring and furniture and cabinets and things like that. You know, you said one thing with the players is love them, trust them and be honest with them, which I'm assuming you do with your employees. But then how do you go from that to the winning? Is that where you're spending a lot of time thinking about strategy? Is that where you're, you know, I'm trying to think about, okay, so obviously if you take care of your team, but is there, what else, is there the strategy part? Or is there other components? Absolutely. Creativity is very, very important. And I'm always trying to figure out a different way to skin the cat. Oh, PETA. Um, I am, I'm, I'm, thinking of, I'm thinking of different ways to always trying to figure out a different way to do things. So creativity is really important. But I just at the root of it all, I just believe if you surround yourself with people who are honest with you and themselves, who have a commitment. And when I say commitment, I mean to their spouse, to their business, to their children, to themselves and have a certain level of, of character. And then you, you both hold them accountable and you reward them well. I think you build a team that's hard to beat in any endeavor, whether it's football or business or, or a family or a nonprofit or whatever. And so I think first it's about building a team of the right kind of people and then being creative. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times people have a conversation on email or text and the way it's texted or the wrong use of a period or an exclamation point, or maybe somebody didn't put the right smiley face behind something or the wrong words were capitalized and people get the words, but because you don't have inflection and because you don't see expression, the words can mean many different things. It's not just what you say, but how you say it often and how you say things get lost in a website and email and text. Therefore, the people that work for me do business with their customers sitting across a table from them. You're saying that you go and see them in person. It's exactly right. You can take all the innovations and technology and everything else, and they are helpful and they do speed up business and they do make things easier. But I still believe there is nothing that replaces a one-on-one -on -one relationship. And you cannot build a true one-on-one -on -one relationship with a website or an email address or text or faxes or whatever the hell it is. I just believe in getting in front of your customers and showing them that you appreciate them, that you're going to be there for them, and that you're, you're there for more than just the contract or just the sale or whatever. And so we spend a lot of time on the road. And the other thing is, you really don't know what the solutions that you can come up with for your customers are, unless you're with your customers seeing what they're doing. 
customers often don't give you all the information you need to be a a good problem solver for your customer. And the only way you're going to know or be innovative or creative at problem solving for your customer, creating solutions for your customer, is watching your customer in action, whatever the business is. So I think you go see them. How do you know when to give up? I was thinking about you two days ago. I saw this homeless person and I was just so angry at them because I saw literally across the street, there's construction people in a hundred degree Texas heat working. And this homeless person's capable and that person over there is working. And I'm like, I'm so angry at you and I have so much respect over here for you. And so I, I was really thinking about, you know, to hear more about your opinion about that. Like, you know, as you hire a lot of variety of people at, at CA Memphis, CH Memphis, like how have you dealt with that? And how do you figure out where to build these, some of them up and some of them you got to cut? You cannot help people that are unwilling to help themselves. So when somebody quits being willing to help themselves, I'm done. But as long as somebody is giving honest, true effort and is trying to improve themselves, I will continue. So this is very fundamental to me. And look, if your listeners or you or whoever doesn't share my faith, that's fine. But this is where my faith boils down to how I operate. I believe that God created the universe. I believe God is the omnipotent power in the universe. I believe he is my creator. That's what I believe. I believe he's all powerful. And I believe that he and his son Christ are a complete myth, if not for forgiveness. What's the whole point for Christ coming to earth and dying on the cross, if not for forgiveness? So I sin about 150,000 times a day and do so with complete and total lack of regard for what my faith says I should be doing, and therefore I'm a wretched, horrible human being. But every morning, I'm fresh. Every morning, I got a lot of hop for a big man. I'm ready to roll. (laughs) And here's how that works. I lay my head down on my pillow at night, and I pray, and I ask forgiveness for all of the things I've done wrong. And I don't just say, hey, forgive me for being a bad guy. Good night. I mean, I really try to come up with all the things I did wrong, and I ask for forgiveness because it takes it off of me. And that's my faith. That's why Christianity is what it is, is forgiveness. And so the next day I hit it hard and I'm clean and fresh. And now I will pull out of my driveway and some jackass will pull out in front of me and I will dog cuss him. And my cleanliness is done. It won't last more than about 30 minutes, but I'm clean. I'm good. I'm ready to roll. But it happens every day, all day. Here's the whole point to all of that. What kind of hypocritical asshole would I be to expect and accept forgiveness from who I think is the creator of our universe and the omnipotent God in my life and then not offer it to another failed, fallen human being? What kind of hypocrite would I be? So an answer to your question is, God never gives up on me, even though he knows I'm going to fail tomorrow and even knows I'm going to fail to the day I die. And he continues to be there for me and take burdens of my own sin off of me because I ask him to. And therefore, I think it's a requirement of me if I'm going to call myself a Christian and hold the faith that I hold that I need to understand that my children are going to fail. My wife is going to fail. My employees are going to fail. My players are going to fail. Everybody's going to fail just like I do. But as long as they're trying to help themselves and as long as their intent is real, and they continue to try to do better, then I'm going to forgive them and work with them because I have to. If they're not willing to help themselves, do you still keep forgiven? There's a difference in forgiveness and a pardon. In other words, if somebody killed my wife, somehow, some way, I would have to find a way in my soul to forgive that person. Okay. But they should still do time. They should be forgiven, but not pardoned. So if Someone in my business or whatever inside my sphere is not helping themselves. I'm not going to kill myself trying to help someone that's got nothing but their hand out is not willing to work on it too. They got to meet me at least halfway. So if someone is not doing well, yes, I'll forgive them, but I'm not going to pardon them. They're going to get fired. They're going to be out of my life. I've got no time for that. I work hard. They work hard. We're going to meet each other halfway. So yes, the answer is I forgive them but I don't pardon them. There's a difference in the two. You got to work for that forgiveness. You got to earn that through your actions and through your willingness to continue to try, not continue to do everything perfect. Nobody does anything perfect. 
None of my employees do anything perfect, but I will continue to work with them as long as they continue to show up every day and work hard at it and work on themselves and make themselves better. So that homeless guy, I don't know if I don't like that homeless guy or not. Yeah, there's a construction yard over there and there are so many good blue collar jobs, good paying blue collar jobs in the United States that are unfilled right this very second. Meanwhile, we got a guy sitting on a corner that said, I will work for food. I think, well, then go get a job if you work for food. Why are you standing here with your hand out? You don't want to work for food. You want to stand here with a sign that says I work for food, but then you want money for not working. So that's BS. That drives me insane. So I get it, but I don't know. Did that guy, does he have mental illness? Did that guy work really hard and really lose everything and need a hand up? I mean, I'm all about a hand up, just not a hand out. So, you know, I don't know, but I will tell you, get to know somebody for three or four days and how they respond and and what their character really is. You'll know if that's someone worth investing time in or not. But if someone's not willing to help themselves, they're not worth investing in. You can't save the world. I guess one thing I was curious is that at night when you ask for forgiveness, so I'm actually Jewish, I'm not very religious, but at night I pray. And generally I, I pray for like clarity and courage. And then I throw in whatever other things are going on, sometimes less, sometimes more. I guess I was wondering for you though, do you ever also, instead of just forgiveness, you also tell God like, yo, here's some good things that went on instead of just the forgiveness part? No, I mean, I'm not patting myself on the back, but I do ask for the same things, certainly. I've had to lay off 46 people since Trump started his trade wars. My business has probably shrunk between 20 and 25% in the last nine months because of the trade wars. So I ask for courage. I ask for to be steadfast. And I ask for me not to show my concern and my angst and my worry to all of the people around me. So certainly I ask for all kinds of help. Yeah, I was just saying also, you know, give yourself some recognition, not you know, overly so, not instead of just uh, the things that you No, man, dude, dude, I'm not a martyr or anything. I'm just <laughs> saying that I'm just saying the basics is this. If you're really honest, how in the world can you expect forgiveness from who you say is God? What kind of hypocrite are you to say you want forgiveness from who you think is God and then not be willing to be forgiving and loving not because of, but in spite of people's failings. As long as those people continue to try, I think you got to continue to try with them. I just, that's just the way I, I feel about it. And again, I think it's about being at the root of everything, just painfully honest. It's funny how it sounds so simple. Like I, I'm always amazed when you talk to people like, man, you're so honest when they say that to someone. I'm like, is everyone else just lying? <laughs> but I think it's, they're not saying what they really mean. One thing I was curious, can you tell more of the story about what's happened since the Trump trade war? It sounds pretty, pretty wild. Well, I mean, Trump started his trade war and the Chinese aren't stupid. They're going to retaliate in Trump's base and they're going to retaliate on stuff that matters. So they're killing farmers and they're killing guys like me, lumber guys and manufacturers. So there's a 25% tariff on all of our products going to China. And in 2018, 26% of the world's hardwoods went to China. So 25% of the marketplace is now closed. And something else for your listeners, in the year 2000, 83% of all the grade hardwood lumber that went to China was manufactured in products that were then exported out of China. So 20 years ago, you could argue that the Chinese were taking American jobs by cheap labor and the advent of inexpensive freight, container freight. But in 2018, 89% of the hardwood lumber manufactured in the United States that was shipped to China, 89% was made into products consumed by the Chinese middle class. It was not exported out. So when I say we're locked out of a market, we're locked out of 25% of the world's market that is unreplaceable anywhere else because it's products being made and consumed in China. So just think of if any industry took an overnight 75% reduction in the marketplace, it's catastrophic. And it is catastrophic. There's a lot of people in my industry that are going bankrupt every day. The way I, I live a lot of times is I read a book and then that's like my life for the next week. This week was the Bill Courtney life. I love that. Yeah, which was which is yeah. good, right? Like that's why I'm excited to share your message. But I think one of the things that I really took away was just like, stop complaining about it and then start solving it. That's it. That's absolutely true. And Australia, South Africa, Morocco, Tallinn, Lithuania, Norway, Sweden, Tallinn, Estonia, the Dominican Republic, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, Taiwan, Japan. So you had to get creative. Yeah. 
and they all want different products and different styles. And all of those countries combined are still only half of what the Chinese market alone was. But between the United States market, the Canadian market, the Mexican market, and all those other countries, there's enough not to really make much money, but to sustain us until we get past this craziness. And then hopefully some normalcy returns to our industry. That's so fascinating because like I'm not our business like this online. We do online marketing. We have a, a deal site called AppSumo.com and we're not impacted by it. Also like inner city kids, like I didn't grow up around that. I grew up in like suburban San Jose, California. And so it is weird, though, when it's something that disconnected. I'm like, I don't know. We're hurting China. Sounds okay to me. There's an interesting narrative coming out of the White House that that the tariffs are not hurting anybody in the United States and they're only affecting the Chinese. It is a complete lie. Anybody that's a farmer, anybody that's in manufacturing and anybody that's in importing is getting clobbered. I have a friend that imports products, artwork mirrors and lamps for like Kirkland's and Pier One and Target and that kind of little accessorized type furniture. He paid $610,000 in tariffs last month. Last month. What does he normally pay? Zero. Wow. There were no tariffs. Yeah. Now he's paying that. And so he's gone from 420 employees to about 200. So you tell the 220 people that got laid off that the tariffs aren't affecting anybody in this country. You tell the 18 lumber companies that have filed bankruptcy since March that this is not affecting anybody in our country. You tell the farmers that this is not affecting anybody in our country. It's just, it's crap. It's not affecting the normal consumer yet, which is also frustrating because our government is picking winners and losers. Apple to this day does not have one dime of tariff on any of their products coming and going because somehow they got hashed out. Well, as long as Generation X and Millennial Kid this doesn't have to pay any more for their game console or their phone, they're Gucci, right? But the truth is, everybody else is being affected with all kinds of stuff. And the reason Trump kept the second round of tariffs that we were talking about three weeks ago off until December 15th was not because he wants to give the country a Christmas present, which is what he said. It is because he knows damn good and well that those tariffs will hit you and everybody, John Q. Public, right in the pocketbook because retailers do not have the margins to just eat 25% tariffs. Prices on everything are going to go up, and the retailers had a heart attack because there's only so much disposable income at Christmas time. Retailers make 22% of their entire annual sales in a three-week period at Christmas, and if tariffs increased prices by between 10 and 25%, retailers were going to lose about 9% of their annual revenue. And as a result, that was going to hammer the economy. Trump knew it, so he backed it up. All I'm saying is, if it doesn't stop soon, it's eventually going to get to the average American consumer and things will change for everybody. Was letting go of the people the only thing to do? And I guess it was also expanding. No, hell no. I've cut $290,000 a month in expenses out of my nut, out of my monthly nut. So just add it up. Think of where that trickles down to the parts supplier down the street and to my bankers and to, yeah, I mean, it, but I'm one person. That's not a big deal. Just multiply that times all of these manufacturers in the United States are getting smoked right now. Honestly, the far left I've been chasing this crazy, ridiculous Russian story to try to hammer Trump, and they're sleeping on the story that's the biggest story in our country, which is these tariffs and the trade war. We've been dealing with this for nine months. I was at the White House two weeks ago talking about this with administration officials, pretty high-level ones, and it's unbelievable to me that people don't understand more what's been going on the last nine months to a year and where this is headed. And we're just now seeing an inversion in the stock market. We're just now seeing issues with fuel and bonds. And it's just the trickling of it. But if this thing goes on another six to nine months, whoever's listening to this is going to remember this conversation and say, I'll be damned. We should have been paying closer attention. We're sleeping on a big problem. How much of what you do in business affects your coaching and, and vice versa when situations like this come up? Because I know in your book, this happened to you, it sounded like 10 years ago. Well, Great Recession, anybody in the lumber business got hammered. It doesn't. I mean, they're two distinctly different lives, and I don't carry 
work home. I don't carry home to work. I don't carry work to football. I don't carry football to work, football to home. I mean, it's just, I just don't do it. What do you think other people running businesses are more specifically with coaching? Like, I think just like the idea of coaching, like what are they not doing that you do? I mean, I don't know. I appreciate the question, but it's broad. And there's a lot better businessmen than me. And there's a lot better coaches than me. I, I don't know what other people aren't doing that I do. My first year at Manassas, they'd won four games in 10 years. Their record was four wins and 95 losses when I showed up. And they had 19 kids on a varsity football team. 19. And they didn't know anything about football, but there were a lot of kids that were athletic. And so we started coaching football, but it, it became really apparent to me early on that this had to be more than just about coaching football because the hands on a clock were more of a suggestion than a requirement, frankly. And, you know, how do you talk about commitment when you can't even be committed to show up on time and character and the dignity of hard work and in fairness and in some places in the world, Team works really hard to coach when you're a 16-year-old and you're just figuring out where you're going to sleep and how you're going to eat. It's hard for you to be selfless enough to actually care about the guy next to you. If you're not selfless, you can't be a good teammate. And if you can't be a good teammate, you can't be a good football team. So we had to start working on all those tenets and characteristics, and we did. And about halfway through the season, we were 3-3. Three and three. And I think 3-3 three and three is pretty average, but when you've won four games in 10 years, three and three is pretty good. And so all the kids were really respectful. Yes, sir. No, sir. Everything on football and anything I said about football, they did it. But when football practice or games were over, half the team was buying in to that important core stuff that I'm talking about. But the other half the team, and then practice or football was over, they were right back in the streets, right back in the same destructive behavior that, that was breaking them down. And so it was driving me crazy. So I went to my guy. Every coach kind of has a guy, and my guy's name was Bo, Bobo. And I said, Bo, I need your help. And he said, what? And I said, what do I got to do to get those guys, that half the team, to buy into the important stuff like you're half the team? And Bobo was the guy that I had real conversation talks with first. We had a lot of real talks. And, and Bobo looked at me and said, I'll coach just keep doing what you're doing, dismissively. If you have kids, you've heard the tone before. And I said, no, Bo. Real talk. And he said, Coach, I don't want to hurt your feelings. And I said, Bo, you're not going to hurt my feelings. I need to understand why I can't get that half the team to buy into the important core stuff like your half the team. It's driving me nuts. And he said, All right, Coach, you're trying to figure out if you're a turkey person or not. And I said, uh, Bo, since I've shown up at Manassas, I've learned a lot of phrases that I'd never heard in my life before, but turkey person's not one of them. What are you talking about? And he said, Coach, every Thanksgiving and Christmas, People come into our neighborhoods from where you live and they bring turkeys and hams and gifts and we take them because we ain't got none. But then they leave and we never see them again. And it makes you wonder if they're doing that because they really care about us or they're doing that to make themselves feel good. And he looked me dead in the eyes and he said, what the hell are you doing here, coach? So in answer to your question, I don't know what I do better than others or worse than others or whatever, but I know this motive matters. And if you are running your business and trying to manage the people in your business unit, and you're really trying to help elevate them, and you're working to make them a better version of themselves, and they know that you're motivated by their success, not just your own, then the next time you ask them to do something, they're going to think, well, every time he asks me to do something, it ends up bettering me. So I think I'll do what they say. And then by definition, you are now leading as a result of them recognizing your motives. So the question is, do you want to be a boss because you want the money in the corner office? Do you want to be a boss because you want the slaps on the back? Do you want to be a winning coach because you want everybody to tell you what a great coach you are? Or do you want to be a good coach to elevate kids? And do you want to be a good boss and a good manager? Because while you elevate yourself, you get to elevate a whole lot of other people. And if you're motivated by helping others and doing it honestly and with real talk, others will see that. And if they see you're motivated by the right things, they will be motivated to, to be the best version of themselves. But if they think you're a selfish prick and you're motivated just to elevate yourself, then you're not going to have much of a team behind you in football, in business, or in your family. So don't be a turkey person. That's awesome. And part of your message all along is just be honest. You'd be like, look, I'm, this is where I am, who I am, why I'm doing these things. And then people want to be a part of that. That's it. But you can't waver. Look, man, there's a lot of people that are awesome business and screwing around on their wife. 
there's a lot of people that are honest as they can be with their football players and then go home and beat their child up for a, an hour at the dinner table about everything they did wrong on the football field. There's plenty of people that are dedicated to their wife, but then they go to work and they sit in a cubicle and try to figure out how to pass the eight hours. None of those people are honest. You can't be honest in part of your life. You either are or you aren't, you know? And I'm just saying it takes effort and you got to be committed to it. But if you will be committed to being honest with yourself and everybody around you and all aspects and walks of your life and be willing to say non-politically correct, non-popular stuff, if it needs to be said, but do so in a civil, non-threatening way and have real conversations about the real stuff that matters, but do it honestly, people will hear you because they know it's coming from a real place. For all the audience out there, what message or thing are you working on that I can direct the listeners and the people uh, following this show? Just go to coachbillcourtney.com. I hope you'll check out Against the Grain. I speak all over the country. You can follow me at I am Coach Bill on Twitter and all that stuff. And uh, I haven't done this yet. You're going to be the first one, but my new book will be out in about a year. And um, I'll tease it with this. Elephants don't jump. So elephants don't jump. Everyone should go check out coachbillcourtney.com. And I'll throw it in the beginning of the show to make sure everyone goes and does that. Do you want me to highlight some of the things that I took away? Would you find that interesting at all? I would find it really interesting. All right. So these are the the key passages I really thought was interesting. Got about like six of them. Number okay. one, character is how you respond to your own failures. Anybody can be a champ when everything's going right. Anybody can be on top of the world when the money's rolling in, the kids are happy, the wife's happy, the spouse is good, when everything's going well at work. Anybody can be a champ when things are going well. Character is revealed when failures happen. What story taught you that or where did that come from? Because I know you have it with the business now, but where did that come from in, in the earlier times? When your mom is married and divorced five times and your dad leaves at four and you've never had any relationship with them and your fourth daddy shoots at you down a hallway with a 38 caliber pistol and the first first fight you ever got in, you were 14 years old and was with a guy that was dragging your mom up some steps by her hair, you just kind of have some pretty crappy experiences come up. You can either succumb to them or address them. And I chose to address them. Awesome. This one I loved. Uh, your word is the most powerful thing. Each time you break your word, you chip away at the bond you have with people you cherish. It's just true. Yeah, that was great. I was like, yo, I'm not telling my girlfriend nothing. So I've been quiet this week. <laughs> I was like, I told you I didn't say what time I'd be home. The comfort zone one I liked. I think it's hard sometimes for people to understand getting out of the comfort zone. I like the part where you talked about find the system that works for your players. Instead of forcing them into your system sometimes, it's like, what are they the best at? Same thing with business. There are people that are salespeople that would not sell anything like you would, but that does not mean they can be successful. There's 90 different ways to do things well. Leaders accept blame when things go wrong. And give credit to the followers when things go right. Do you know who came up with the Bay of Pigs invasion? Do you know whose idea that was? Based on this, I would say Kennedy. No. Is Eisenhower. Oh, was it? Yeah. And it was developed completely by all of those guys. And it was kind of forced down Kennedy's throat. And Kennedy did it. And it was a colossal failure. And he went on national TV and took 100% blame for it. How many times have you heard the current administration talk about the past administration? Every time. How many times did you hear that administration talk about the Bush administration? Plenty. So don't be right or left, just be honest. John Kennedy could have done that, and it was true. And instead, he stood up and said, my fellow Americans, I made a decision and I failed. That is honesty and character. And he is a leader because he took it on the chin when he didn't even do anything wrong. But the minute something goes right, he's pointing at him saying, look what the people at NASA did. Not, hey, I'm the guy that said we're going to the moon and I did it. Pat me on the back. Everybody call me great. He said, look at what our American people at NASA did. That's a leader. That's a leader. Give credit to the followers when things go right and stand up in front of the followers and shield them from the fallout and take the heat when things go wrong. You will have people that will follow you to the end of the earth if they believe you're that kind of leader. Last two that I really enjoyed. To find your destiny, examine people 10 to 15 years ahead and decide if they could envision that life for themselves. That was a message you gave your players. I also say that to people who've been working for me for one or two or three years. I mean, the manager in front of them is going to retire one day. What's your destiny? 
What's your legacy? What you going to look like in 40 years? Do they do the job the way you would do it? What would you do about it differently? How could you improve the job your manager's doing? Take a view of it. Some of the best ideas I've ever gotten are from people who just got here, been around here for six months because they don't have any preconceived notions of the policies and procedures that go on around here. They're just looking around. They might have some good ideas you walk past every day, but you're never going to know them if they don't trust you well enough to tell you. And then the last thing, everyone's heard of legacy. And I think a lot of times, I think when I was younger, I thought about it more like, what's my legacy? And I want a legacy. I'm doing all this cool stuff. But I thought one thing that you, you highlighted that was unique around it, which is a legacy is over a lifetime. You said a legacy is over a lifetime, which is much more important than one's material possessions. Every day is an amazing gift offering you another opportunity to build that legacy. You know, I think everyone thinks of legacy at the end, but I like that you're saying it's actually now. No, and I'll, I'll tell you something else. In terms of being a parent, where else do you get to see your own legacy unfold in front of you other than parenting? And what other activity do you get a courtside seat and you're also a player in the game? And so with regard to legacy, I just, I really challenge everybody hard to think about your legacy is an ongoing piece of art that you never stop developing or it's a canvas you never start working on until your last breath. And your legacy is not to be celebrated after you're dead, it's to be revered while you're alive and constantly molded and worked on. I love it. Coach Bill. Yeah, bro. Did you're the man. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you love the episode. If you did, go check out Bill at coachbillcourtney.com. His company, if you need any wood, that's Classic American Hardwoods. And you can follow him on Twitter. I am Coach Bill. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's play some flag football together. Before you go, let me know what you thought of the episode by emailing podcast at okdork.com. I check it every leap year. Final plug, special thanks to Jason at podcasttech.com. As always, you know the drill. He's amazing. And thanks to Sean, David, and Dean at the Dork Team. Also, special shout out to Chad at Suwa.com this week. He is my business partner. Appreciate it. You're the man. It's been a great ride. I'm looking forward to many more. What's your favorite documentary?